Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn from Focus Compounding on air live with Mr. Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great with everybody else as well. If this is the first time you are joining us, thank you so much for tuning in with us. Be sure to check out all of our content on the internet. Go to focuscompounding.com to do exactly that. Uh, if you're interested in learning more about our money management services, hey, reach out to me at andrewatfocuscompounding.com. We have managed accounts and we have a fund. And there's pros and cons and differences between the two vehicles, but let's chat about it. Reach out to me at andrewatfocusedcompounding.com. So Jeff, do you know what today's date is? Yes. Do you know what today is? <laughs> do I know what today is? No. Yeah. What's special, what's special about today is that Warren Buffett, the man that we've spoken oh, yes. so much about on this podcast, do you know how old he turns today? Uh, no. He, 92 yes, years yes. old. Yes, I did. Okay. Yep. He turns 92 years old today. It is August 30th, 2022. And Mr. Warren E. Buffett turns 92 years old. You actually just had a birthday as well. You yes. just turned 37 years old. Both August Correct. babies. Look yes, at that. That's true. Yeah. Both August babies. But yeah, 92 years old. Pretty crazy. Still at it every single day. You know, all the people that are looking to emulate Buffett and are inspired by Buffett, here's something that you need to think about. One thing that I guarantee you Buffett is doing today is he is reading a 10K either at his desk or wherever he is. He's still keeping at it. He's still after it. And he's reading a 10K today. So 92 years, continuing on, being persistent until the day that he dies. Pretty impressive, Jeff. 92 mm -hmm. years. What are your favorite takeaways from Buffett or favorite lessons from Buffett? Any off the top of your head? Oh, well, the I think we've talked about the early chapters. Uh, I mean, the early chapters of the snowball that are covering the partnership days and the very early Berkshire days, but especially the partnership days and um, all the investments they talk about there with his traveling around and doing those things himself when he was involved a lot in them. Um, I think those are... Uh, yeah, it's a period of about 15 years or so, maybe a little bit longer that I think those, that's a really interesting period, um, before things get a little more complicated in terms of the story of explaining things and bigger deals and all that. But yeah, those smaller ones, uh, I think that that is the most interesting part for me, uh, learning about him. Why is that the most interesting part? Uh, you get a real sense, not just for like the, uh, theory of like how he approaches things, but actually the practically how he did it figured out about these things how he followed up on them what he learned about them how he acquired the stock in them over time and um real hands-on work of it then uh he was you know running most everything about the partnership for a while there do you think he was like so he was dealing in obviously these less followed less liquid stocks i mean do you think a lot of the positions he built was actually through open market transactions or was a lot of it i mean if you read the old stories, it sounds like a lot of it was actually off-market transactions and really hustling to find stock to buy from people. Yeah. Well, the pink sheets were a lot less efficient that way. So yeah, it, even when you're talking about things that are on-market stuff, it's 
when they talk about it trading by appointment and everything, it, it is more of an issue of working with the broker and stuff to find things. But yeah, obviously there's a bunch of cases where they talk about blocks of stock. He talks about it a little bit in the letters that he wrote, you know, and some cases it's family members, some cases, some other things um, of the companies. And that's how he got the big blocks of stock. There's other ones where, you know, he traded more in things that the most famous examples would be like American express and stuff like that, where that's all market stuff. But, um, and Mark, yeah, so American Express and Disney, he bought like 5% probably all completely through the market. But the other, the ones that talk about with the Tweety Brown stuff, a lot of that is, yeah, blocks of stock. Isn't it crazy that he was able to raise the amount of money that he did? And this was pre-podcast, pre-internet, pre-virability, like virability, if you are like doing something that is successful. I mean, it, it was yes. pretty much all word of mouth, right? And at the end yeah. of his partnership, I mean, what was he managing? Like... $100 million, which I, I forget the exact amount, but it'd be close to like, what, a billion dollars today, right? Inflation adjusted. Yeah, so that is an interesting part about it, but it's kind of like a fairly new concept. I mean, not all that new in, in theory in New York and stuff, hedge funds that existed for, um, I mean, really since Ben Graham actually, but he wasn't that famous for running one. But um, it was a kind of a new thing. So people thought about it as an alternative to anything else. You notice that people aren't talking about it as an alternative to going with another investment partnership when they're talking about investing with him. It's him or they're doing things their own and stuff. Um, so it was a very different time. So yeah, it went from competition of a couple funds or something to thousands, tens of thousands of choices. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's interesting. So what is your favorite case study on Warren Buffett? Is there a situation that, is it like, the sees candy situation is it um you know like dempster mills is actual uh investing in berkshire hathaway and how he came about controlling the company i mean is there a specific situation that is your favorite when you think about those early partnership days um there's a few that are interesting i think samborn map is a pretty interesting one um but there's even ones that are talked about not as much in, in the books um, that are kind of interesting if you read some of the letters. Um, yeah, I think probably that's the one that stands out to me the most is Sanborn Map because of um, knowing about uh, Ben Graham's uh, investment in Northern Pipeline. And so seeing the similarities there and some of the some of the other ones, are the same thing, seeing how he's applying the Graham approach in certain ways and seeing how he does it a little, little differently um, and how he brings his personality to it. You know, that one where he's talking about trying to uh, get the board that doesn't own any stock to do what he wants them to do and, and how he achieves that over time and how frustrated he is with it and all that. Um, a lot of those, are, you know, are uh, remind me of how similar it was to the Graham approach in the early days. The same thing with some of the arbitrage things he talks about and um, others like that. It's it's his take on much more concentrated approach of a lot of the exact same Graham things. Whereas at the, by the end of the partnership, he does he is doing things that are different from Graham. But in the early days of the partnership, it's really just his personality instead of Graham's, but Graham's techniques. Do you think that? had a lot to do with because of the size of his partnership he had just grown so much yes i think that's one part of it and then i also think he was a lot more interested in business than graham was and i think there's some personality things with it too i think demister mill is a good example of that he uh, although he did get involved in berkshire i think again for personality reasons um with that he uh didn't want to be involved in the same sort of things in the future as he had been that way 
And um, I think that had he had a different kind of personality, that might have been different. Uh, I think he enjoyed the idea of being able to own things for the longer term. And he definitely was more interested in business than Graham ever was. Graham was not very interested in business. It seems like Buffett, yeah, he didn't like the whole town hating him and writing about him in the newspaper. Sort of what you would think about the typical activist that comes and is you know, pretty combative to the company and stuff like that. Do you think that's what the transition was? Like with Dempster Mill, the huge takeaway he had from that? Yeah, I mean, he was basically liquidating a company town. Um, yeah. So, I mean, he, he tried to, and did manage to not completely liquidate it, to sell it off and everything. But that's effectively what he was doing. That's how he was getting most of the capital out. Even with Berkshire, that's a significant part of it. That's how they got a lot of cash out early on, um, is lowering some expenses and also turning a lot of stuff to cash that you manage to tax things, things like that. So it's still the same idea, overcapitalized, liquidating stuff. Uh, it was not going in there and improving operations and all those things that LBO, uh, that um, private equity firms say they do now. There wasn't any of that. Yeah, it's interesting. We've been through certain cities on our travels. It was like an old coal town and mm -hmm. it was basically like a ghost town. So I couldn't imagine liquidating a company and doing you know layoffs and stuff like that where basically everybody in the town works for said company. And the amount of criticism that would come with doing that, because to my point about this old coal town or whatever it was that we were driving through, you could tell at one point in its history, it was probably a thriving, mm -hmm. populated, busy town. And now it's just like nothing. And it's just a lot of um, vacant homes, vacant lots and stuff like that. Not, you know, kept up with. Yeah. And uh, I think that's tough for Buffett's personality, obviously, yeah. And that was a lot closer to home, too, uh, Dempster, than um, being something across the country, too, you know. Mm -hmm. Was Sanborn Map the situation where he was on the board and in the snowball they talk about how they would just sit around and smoke cigars and yes. Buffett was pissed because he didn't smoke cigars <laughs> and yep. they, they like talked about how like oh they should pay for my chewing gum or whatever and Buffett was upset he was doing the math of how much of his capital that was that was going to uh to cigars yes that's the one where they talk about we should just swallow the tax bill which also gives you mm -hmm. an idea of Buffett's uh, obsession with the tax things. Uh, if you see the things that really get him annoyed, it's when people pay taxes that they don't have to, you know, with these corporate deals. That's the few times where he really speaks out against management, uh, like he did with Kraft, um, where they got rid of one business and to fund something else, and they pay the huge tax bill on it, things like that. Uh, yeah, he really hates it when people do something like that. And we've seen that in some situations. I, I kind of feel the same way that way. There was one recently where I looked, you know, was saying about a deal that, you know, the, it's interesting that the buyer is paying a lot of taxes on it, that the seller isn't receiving compensation for it. It's just tax inefficient, but it's just easier for them to do it. So they did it, but you know, presumably they have clients. Is that just like stuff. path of least resistance? Oh, yeah. That's why they want to do it. Yeah. Get the job yeah. done. I'm sure, I mean, it, what we do and everything, I'm sure there are things where it's like, well, it would be easy, it would be simpler just for dealing with something if it was that you didn't, if, if it was that you didn't have some sort of um, more complicated thing that you continue on with. And that's, a, that's all that the purpose was there, I think, is just so they didn't have to set up a separate vehicle for it or something. Crazy. Crazy, crazy. Well, it is August 30th, and where we stand today, the SP 500 is down uh, about 16% year to date. 10 year yields have been 
running 3.119%, crude oil 91 bucks, and natural gas around 9 spot zero zero. Have you been following the electricity problems that are going on overseas? Um pro- not as detailed like as you the can price, tell me. like like the price of uh like in Europe, electricity in the pro- yeah, in Europe. Yeah. yeah. How is that going to affect uh, the United States, if at all? Oh, well, I mean, directly, I don't think it'll affect them at all. I mean, we'll export natural gas to them, but there's only so much we can export. I don't know that it'll have a huge effect. You saw what happened when exports from the U.S. um, were temporarily. Yeah. yeah. So it has a temporary effect on the price, but it's not a big deal. Um, Obviously, for their economy, the electricity, depending on the country, can be a big, big deal, right? So like when you're talking about... Um, the UK, those are retail type things they're mostly worried about, but you have something like Germany and natural gas, you know, that's a major, uh, industry is a major user of that. So it affects their prices and affects how, um, their economy can operate that way in terms of production, which does affect, you know, trade and stuff around the world. Yeah. It's pretty crazy. I mean, they had, uh, yields have been running since Powell spoke at the Jackson hole, uh, I guess conference or whatever they had their you know, huddle there. And then he spoke about, uh, you know, basically that they're going to stick to the mandate of slowing down inflation, bringing it back down to 2%. So any talk of a potential Fed uh, pivot sounds like is on uh, hold for now. So yields have been uh, running and, you know, stocks have been selling off. So it's been an interesting time into the market. I'm kind of curious, how much do you pay attention to all of the macro that's been going on uh, as of recent? Well, the macro stuff in terms of interest rates is kind of significant for some stocks. Um, And the issue is more how realistically the market is pricing in the likely future um, trajectory of interest rates, uh, the entire yield curve over a longer period of time, and whether there could be mistakes with that in um, how certain companies are operating, financial companies uh, mostly. And uh, how big an issue that uh, creates in the future. Um, It's also somewhat of an issue for some insurance companies and things like that, particularly with inflation. But there can be a problem that happens if it turns out that market expectations for interest rates are not realistic with what actually turns out to happen. And there's some potential for that to, to be there as the market is a lot more... Um, expecting rates to be a little bit lower than you might otherwise uh, expect and um, certainly to come down faster um, than would seem likely if I didn't know what the market was pricing things in at. So if you have a lot of banks and others thinking that that's an accurate prediction of the future, then there's significant risk um, compared to the past of misjudgment costing them a lot of money and um, causing some problems for capital positions even and and definitely very bad net interest margins. Do you think that's more of a short-term thing or? Um, no, I, I think mean, if it's you look more... at like the price of the curve, right? So, or right. Uh, the curve where we currently stand right now, the Fed could control the front end of the curve and then the longer end of the curve is more based on like expectations of the market. And I mean, they're, basically pricing in lower interest rates in the future that you would be thinking today if you didn't look at the curve yourself. Right. So I think 
the issues not so much is there gonna be a recession you know now or in the next year or something um this or how high the terminal rate will be this time um the issue is that there's predictions whether it's the fed's dot plot or market predictions for things for inflation to be at like two percent in a couple of years that's um a very specific um and could be correct but uh prediction that's not necessarily what you would expect um the federal deficit in terms of gdp is the highest since covid happened it's been the highest um that it has ever been except for world war 2 so um you know when we talk about things like these price pressures coming down these uh backlogs of things supply chain stuff all that yeah but we're talking about like you know i look at like you know we talk about sticky inflation right sticky price inflation yeah. which mm-hmm. is a fed measure um and that would be the one that that i would usually look at um i think it's 5.4% 5.5% something like that um if it's half of that in the future that is half of it comes from things that aren't transitory um it's still a bit high um you know it's been you know that's not the measure that they use but it's usually been one and a half two percent or something the last decade not two and a half percent um so i I think the issue is more that rates could be higher nominal rates could be higher for longer than people think and that on things like mortgages and stuff that might have a really big effect um it depends on the specific stock you know um like a an example of a stock that benefits from what I'm talking about would be Frost. Mm-hmm. Since they don't have a lot of exposure to um, duration risk, um, they, they're mostly uh, f- really neutral for a bank. You know, Fair, Banks are normally biased a lot in terms of borrowing short and lending long. Uh, they're a lot more neutral than most banks that way. And um, the market's expectations, I think, are reasonable. As you can see here, I think that P is 20, price to book is two and a half. The market seems to have an accurate read of what the future will be for them. However, in their earnings call transcript, you know, they said, uh, in their, I mean, in their earnings call, they said, you know, we think that the analysts estimates are too low. And they also <laughs> reiterated what they thought about increases in terms of their EPS and stuff. And what they said is consistent with what I would kind of expect. Cause when I wrote this stock up, long time ago the i mean now it's like seven years ago or something the first time it looked like the fed might soon be raising rates and that didn't really happen until later but um that's what we're looking at in terms of what effect it would have on earnings and that's the effect you'll see this time for a lot of other banks will be very different um and i think the next few quarters for some of them mortgage focused ones and stuff will be very very difficult i think we'll see i think deposits for banks overall will shrink this year which would be it happens from time to time, but it's very unusual. And overall, just like whatever's going on with the economy, the thing is we don't talk about money supply and stuff on the podcast usually, but it will be, uh, it's unusual for money supply to different, there's different measures of money supply, but for money supply to be growing so slowly or to shrink um, compared to most people's entire investing career. So, and to give you an idea, I mean, it was growing by incredible amounts during COVID or, you know, d- different measures of money supply, but some of them are up over 20% and stuff. So it goes from that to nothing, basically. Um, so it 
it will feel very different that way. So far, it hasn't made a huge impact. I mean, stock markets are down, bond markets down in the first part of the year, but it hasn't made as much of an impact on like um, financial markets as you might expect. So they've taken it pretty well. Mm-hmm. Do you remember what the price of CFR was when you wrote it up? And was it seven years ago? Oh, I'd have to check the exact time, but yeah, that's I was doing the avid hog around then. Um, yeah, I mean, no, I don't know the exact uh, what the exact price was. No, it was probably like in the sixties, I imagine, right? Probably. To it. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we we were trying to. I mean, you see that dip there. That's when we were certainly looking at it, but that's not mm-hmm. when we published the report. I'm sure. Yeah, it's just interesting to me how like you know how just stock prices move. Okay, so over time, for example, I mean, colon, I guess it did go up, but then it came back down. But really, the price kind of just traded within a range, if you will. But then, you know, over time, it happens. And then you could be like, okay, well, what was the IRR on this? I mean, over seven years, a 55 stock to $130, you know, now you're starting to get those IRRs that are in the 13 to 15% per year um, number. So it's just interesting how, you know, if you really underwrite a stock over five years or 10 years or whatever. I mean, you have to go into it with those exp- expectations of like, let the situation actually play out as opposed to just dancing in and dancing out. It's the Buffett quote of, if you're not going to own it for 10 years, don't own it for 10 minutes. Yeah. And, uh, you could have bought it third week of March, 2020 for the same prices and the lows of 2015. It doesn't even show up on that chart, but it actually got lower than it shows. Cause it pro- dropped probably 20% in a day. That's not really on that chart in the middle of COVID. Um, but there you go. If you can see, you can see kind of there that it drops out of the bottom of your chart. But then there's huge volume. That's the highest volume uh, part of it. But that's the, uh, March of 2020 when COVID is happening, right? And that's because rates have been taken down to nothing. Um, you know, but people who are good at doing that, speculating on interest rates and how it affect things, could the stock hasn't been that hard that way to get ahead of. Um, you can it it if you were correct in predicting interest rates um, or just moved into the stock pretty fast after realizing what was expected about the market was expecting about interest rates, uh, you could have done pretty well. In fact, you could have you know stayed out of it. Um, on the very long term, though, you'll see it hasn't really paid, you know, for a very long term investor, it hasn't really paid to get in and out. There's not much point because as you can see, just owning the stock for 20 years or something has, has been better than, um, g- than darting in and out of it. Although for some of the 10 years from 2010 to 2020, you could have, it it was, you know, flatter, Um, you know, from about the time of the financial crisis to about COVID, um, I suppose you could have traded it, right? Like if if that had been your approach to trade things, then maybe that would have worked better than being a long-term investor. What a lot of the return has come from pre-financial crisis, 90s through 2005 and uh, COVID to today. But regardless of how the stock does, certainly the earnings will be up a lot. Um, and if and if interest rates stayed high for a while, then their their um, their earnings would really be up a lot, and their net interest margin would be high, and their return on equity would be higher. And you can see that because it's priced at two and a half times book. Since this is a stock that was only earning ten percent or so returns on equity for the last ten years, that's a really high price. But it is true that last time we had interest rates at say a Fed funds rate at three and a half, four percent, they were earning more like twenty percent once that was going on for a few years in a row, you know. So mm-hmm. yeah, you could see that right here on the screen. Yeah. Closer to twenty percent. Mm-hmm. So basically the market right now is pricing that in. And they yes. know what's going on, that they're gonna higher rates are good for frost. 
Mm-hmm. But that's totally different than a bunch of uh, banks, which are exposed more, like we said, to mortgages and have a huge difference in terms of, um, well, I mean, first you can see their loans to deposits are really low. A lot, there's plenty of banks that are really high. And then also you have plenty of banks that have much more, um, uh, their, it will take longer for their loans to reset. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they have really low loans to deposits. Mm-hmm. I mean, most banks you come across, I mean, that are, I would say more standards, like what, in the 70% area, Frost is, you know, mm-hmm. less than, I mean, usually 50 or less, it looks like, just from eyeballing it. Yeah, I mean, I think they've they've been running at close to half the industry average, probably on average a lot of the time. Um, they got a little bit higher before, but two-thirds or half of the industry average, because the industry varies a lot. Um, you know, at the peak of the financial crisis, it was effectively at like 100%. At the bottom of the depression, it was probably under 30%. So it varies hugely by decade, but uh, they're always under it significantly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, on a lot of securities. Interesting. Cool. Well, in today's podcast, we have a bunch of questions that listeners had sent in um, uh, really via Twitter, but I did pull some from emails. Um, uh, we do Q and A's and I think it's good to do it about once a month to connect with all of the listeners and viewers. And somebody had sent in a question about Occidental and actually since this email, Buffett had received approval to what was it, Jeff purchase more than 20% of Occidental or get to, yeah, he can go up to 50% now he's already over 20. Yeah. And, and with the warrants, he's probably closer to 30 than 20 already if he was to exercise those yeah so he could go to 50 um is this a creeping takeover in public i mean what's going on here um i'm not sure about that i don't think there was any like antitrust issues and stuff with this at all so i think it's not a big harm to ask for it and really he was already over it so i think that's the reason why um but i'm not sure I'd have to check, but I think his purchases were made, what, $10 or less below where we are now. I don't think he's made any purchases around this price, um, right? So he hasn't made purchases since that announcement. And if if he did, we we wouldn't know because, yeah, I mean, I think at that point, every time it's like 1% move in the value, he would have to update his uh his filings or whatever but i mean yeah i mean has this been pretty surprising uh no he's he wants to get exposure to oil mm-hmm. so knows the company he was involved with it before but he's definitely this isn't surprising we're having inflation now he's been interested in oil things before that's a commodity that he's done things in in the past sometimes good sometimes bad um he's always very worried about inflation and he's has usually a pretty bullish view on oil prices over time, though not necessarily like volumes and stuff like that. So this question is, when valuing an oil and gas company like Occidental, price to book becomes very important because of how crucial hard assets are to the business model. Occidental, however, buys back a material amount of stock every year, which lowers book value and distorts the usefulness of price to book. Would I add back the buybacks in order to value the company using this metric? Um, so we don't analyze a lot of oil companies, so my advice probably isn't very good on this. I think book value is irrelevant. Um, the SEC requires that these companies provide a standardized um, discounted cash flow analysis of their reserves. Um, that would make a lot more sense than price to book. And you can look at where reserves are and um, how much they are. 
the reason why I don't think price to book matters is take something we are invested in, NACO, right? So some of the, when it sells natural gas now, some of that is from legacy assets that it's owned for 100 years and that were originally associated with purchasing um, land for coal. It has nothing to do with the price of natural gas, nor in fact did it even have to do with uh, the idea that you would be extracting natural gas from those properties. Um, also on the books are drag lines. Also on the books are you know big piles of coal in some places, some of which may not be that heavily used. Uh, certainly a, the rights to use a lot of coal reserves in some places, which I think it's unlikely they will ever use because if you look at how quickly they're using up the coal in some places, how long the life of coal would have to be, uh, you have a ton of reserves. Uh, I mean, you have, you know, uh, you have <laughs> uh, hundreds of millions of tons of reserves, uh, of which maybe in the most optimistic scenario, you could get through half of it over, you know, the life of some of these things. Um, realistically, you're not even going to bump up against the amounts that you have. Um, so same thing here. I think that the historical price is irrelevant in terms of, um, you know, probably some of the most valuable um, reserves would be at very low uh, book values, right? We don't know what Saudi Aramco's books look like and stuff, but presumably um, some of the most, uh, the lowest cost, uh, least marginal um, properties have low book values on them. Um, and some less economical ones might have higher book values because they're more recent. You know, taking the example of NACO, right? They also buy things, they invest in things today like oil rights. Well, those could be at very high prices when you look at the equivalent in terms of um, the energy equivalent of it in terms of when we do uh, comparing natural gas and oil. They could have natural gas reserves that are at very low valuations on their books and they could have recently purchased oil that's at very high book values. So I don't think that book value is useful in that way. I think figuring out the actual reserves of the um, resource is the place to start. And then he asked, I mean, what are some other methods that you use when researching such a cyclical company? I'd imagine looking at a Schiller PE would be the only useful way of using an earnings metric since it's always over or under earning relative to its earnings power. So basically, how would you go about valuing a company that is like Occidental. So what I've done, and it's mostly been looking at companies that rely on using energy more than energy companies, is to look at long-term averages of the price of the commodity and to try to single out those years that seem most normal, most median, and to use those as a guide to what the median year would be, right? So in terms of pricing, because the volumes could be completely different. The company could have changed a lot. Usually the company will have changed a lot. So that's not that helpful, a Schiller PE, right? Because you might see 15 years ago, uh, a 15-year average or something might be great, but the company was very different 15 years ago than it is today. For some of these big giant oil companies, that might not be the case. They haven't changed. They're, they're you know, a couple percent a year. Sometimes they're changing in terms of um, the amount of uh, reserves that they have and things like that. But for a lot of other companies, they're changing a lot. Um, I would look at how realistic prices are for some particular years. And like for oil, you have, you can go back, you know, a hundred years. And I mean, you can go back 150 years. 
um, and look at what prices are in real terms. I've always preferred looking at prices of commodities relative to other commodities. Um, so that's always what I've done, looking at like take a commodity and compare it to 30 other commodities or something and see when you have years in which it is priced at a ratio that's higher than all other commodities in terms of its own commodity price. That is like if gold is priced, I mean, if oil is priced higher than gold, oil is priced higher than lime, oil is priced higher than copper or whatever, um, th then it has been on average in a given year. And you're seeing that all in the same year. That's a strong indicator that it's particularly expensive. The reverse would be when you see that reversed and, you know, oil buys less of other things. The only reason why I do that is you want to avoid things happening where say someone decides I'm going to buy this because it's really cheap on the basis of uh, it has, you know, it has huge inventories of cotton or something. Sometimes there's a year where cotton's at the highest it is in 50 or 100 years or something, and it could be many times the normal price. So you want to avoid that. But otherwise, you don't need to look at a long-term Schiller PE type approach because you have information about the actual reserves or assets or whatever that it has today. And that's what matters. Um, the long-term record, I'd say, is more for capital allocation and understanding the business that way. But I think the value of the company is 100% in what its assets are as of today, as long as you know the capital allocation. The problem, I think, is sometimes you get the right assets, it looks like, when you add it up. So you do your calculation of what would be the fair market value of these assets, or you do your discounted cash flow, or whatever you do, saying, what's a normal price for this, and what do I think it's worth? Let's say Buffett does that with Occidental. Um the reason that he buys Occidental now is because he talked about this. He likes the capital allocation. He likes who's running it. He he thinks it makes enough sense that it's a way that he can invest in oil through um, through something that is doing uh, that isn't going to harm him in terms of capital allocation. Like people ask us sometimes about gold, right? And a lot of times, gold miners look very attractive relative to gold. The problem is that many times what you're buying into then is capital allocation that you don't want going forward. Yeah. They go buy uh, another gold miner. <laughs> right. The, the thing that people do when analyzing these things usually is, um, and even if we take NACO, NACO is a good example because it's much more close to a pure royalty, but even they have taken money from what are basically royalties and invested that in more stuff in the same industry, you know, in energy. Now it's small compared to what they had produced from that over time, but still, you're taking money that you made from something and usually putting it back into that same business. Um, and this is the same danger that you have, say, with a home builder, real estate, things of all kinds. If you like the capital allocation, they can create value for you over time. But what value investors do is they calculate and they say, oh, this company is cheaper than uh, the oil in the ground is worth. But what they're going to do generally, a lot of them until recently, all of them did a lot of this, is uh, they produce a bunch of earnings from it, but then they put a huge amount of that earnings back into um, the commodity or adjacent ones. Um, and so you don't just get a liquidation of the company, which is sort of the calculation people are doing. If you do the um, the standardized present value calculation I was talking about with the SEC, what that's really valuing is as if you were liquidating the company from now on. You're, you're using up the reserves that they have now. You're not adding new ones. So that's really what it's doing. Where you're going to be wrong about that calculation is they're going to then take it and do really bad things with it sometimes. And sometimes they do very bad things with it. Um, and that's the really big worry. 
Um, if Berkshire owned all of an oil company, then that oil company would probably behave very differently from a publicly traded one. Sure. Yeah. Because yeah. of capital allocation. Right. So, for instance, the dumb thing that was, you know, this is going back 15, uh, yeah, 15 years or so, but all Wall Street could talk about that. Now they talk about free cash flow of these things. But all they talked about then of the big oil companies was whether they were replacing their reserves. It was the dumbest time in the history of oil to want to replace your reserves. You should have been using it up as fast as you could. I mean, we now we're complaining about how high oil prices are. They aren't nearly as high, even in nominal terms, as they were at the worst point there in 2007, 2008. So um, you shouldn't have been wanting to replace your reserves. And yet it was you either had to replace them somehow or acquire things or do something that would mean that your reserves would increase just a tiny bit or else people figured, oh, well, yes, you're paying your dividend and everything, but you're not lasting, you're not a growth company that way. Um, instead, the approach isn't like the way that Berkshire runs things with insurance, which is, you know, in years where insurance is um, priced right, you write a lot of it, but in years where it's not, then you shrink down. Um, most companies don't do that. And so you're going to see this pattern where if the commodity is as cyclical as oil is, and almost all globally traded commodities are like this, um, you're going to have a lot of bad years in terms of returns on capital. And they're going to allocate a lot on the average over time. And so I'm not sure that they really um, meet Buffett's market value test a lot of the time unless they are uh, paying out a lot of dividends since that works kind of like a safety valve, um, a release valve to get rid of some of the capital. They can buy back stock, but like a lot of companies, you know, the stock buybacks tend to be timed more to when they produce free cash flow not to when it's a good time to buy back their stock. Do you think a lot of this just comes from the incentive of being a public company and always being on that treadmill where you feel like you just have to continue to show growth, show growth, show growth. It's all about the future. It's all about the reserves. Where a lot of these companies, if it was 100% a private business that they own themselves, they would act and behave a little differently. I do think that's true. However, I'm always surprised by how much they... Uh, and I mean this in all industries, uh, people believe uh, unusual circumstances are going to last for a while uh, when they're positive ones. Um, when they're negative ones, they don't. COVID's the mm -hmm. best example of this recently. We have a bunch of companies, all sorts of companies. I mean, we have companies like Amazon, companies like Walmart and Target that seem to have believed that some sort of changes they were, they were seeing in terms of sales of goods online and everything were somehow permanent or represented some change, you know, streaming things, uh, all sorts of different companies seem to have thought, even though we all knew exactly what was causing it, everyone was locked mm -hmm. up in their homes. It, there was a clear explanation for what was happening, but they had to believe that this was going to happen eventually. And so, you know, they see this as, as, um, explaining that. I think there's always an element of that. When you read things back at points where there's been a bubble in oil, for instance, Companies will always find a way to say, well, yes, you know, it shouldn't be $105 a barrel. There's $20 of speculative stuff in there, right? But like we can get to a number that says this. They they see what the market number is and then it starts to distort things over time in terms of how they think about it, even though they can't get to those numbers themselves. It's what you saw in the housing boom. 
they understand that, yes, it's a boom. This is temporary, just like everyone understood COVID. But they also half believe it. They don't fully believe it, but they half sort of believe it. And they get off of believing, um, uh, you know, a really hard-headed analysis of it that way. So it seems like there's very few industries where that isn't the case, where they don't think that a um, really good period for them in terms of demand suddenly being a high or something like that. Um, is going to last. Uh, it represents some sort of shift that they need to respond to. There's not that many industries where they don't. Is it a hard thing to work through where maybe like a company like Target or Amazon, well, maybe not Amazon, but let's use like Walmart and Target, so real brick and mortar, right? Where they may have known that this wasn't going to last forever, but man, the alternative, meaning going to Target, not having what you need in stock, and a customer going to Walmart instead of Target was just worse than building up your inventory and maybe running a little bit too fat? Or do you think that's just the wrong way entirely to look at it? I don't. I mean, I think that's possible. I honestly think that companies like Amazon, Target, Walmart don't have any understanding of nor have really attempted to understand what the demand is for their products. And then they just respond to operational challenges as they come. Generally, their products are not highly cyclical in the demand overall for the things. And so they're just trying to be very data-driven and very fast in responding to things and not have overall opinions about things. And I think they aren't actually a good guide to being able to know. I don't think Amazon has a good idea of what the e-commerce market will look like in five years or something. I think they just look month to month at what's happening. They follow those trends. And, um, you know, that's fine. I think to a significant extent, we talk about like progressive or something. I think that they do the same thing. Um, I don't think they have a really big opinion about things overall. I think they collect a lot of data, act very fast on that data. And um, I think, and think of it as an operation challenge. Um, sometimes it can be a problem though, if you get into longer term decision-making, right? So you can, all these things about, um, all, a lot of these companies are very good at making decisions that pay off very quickly, but they wouldn't necessarily be able to make decisions about longer term things, which is some of what we're dealing with with um, commodities like this. Um, these are very long term projects they have to be planning. I don't know that these companies would be very good at planning that kind of stuff out. Um, and that's more of the issue. Uh, so they're... The problem for investors in this, related to this, is uh, if, if companies increase their expenses because they aren't going to take those expenses back out fast enough. And they're, you know, as much as we talk about like you can cut expenses and stuff, the problem is what happens during a period of good results in any industry is that you add expenses, which then stay there longer. And that's what we'll see when earnings do eventually decline with companies. It's going to be in large part when you look back at it, not that they, um, I mean, they'll explain it as economic factors and stuff, but basically when there is a recession-type condition in their industry for these companies, um, it will be that we added too much expense during the good years, and we can't get rid of it fast enough. We can't get back quite to the size we were before. And then that will show up in bad margins and stuff. And what if a lot of those expenses are in the form of wages to employees, right? So, I mean, wages don't ever get rolled back, really. So how would you think about that as an investor going forward i mean is it like okay well the company needs to raise their prices then or they're just gonna lose on their margin um yeah i think 
it's bad. I mean, that yes, it's not going to get rolled back. Now, it's not as bad like Arc Restaurants talks about getting people more overtime and stuff. That's it's not as bad as too many people. Um, too high wages, too many hours is a lot easier to roll back than too many people. Hiring people that you shouldn't have hired in the first place. Like Facebook was talking about that. that they did Yeah, that. Mark, he was like, wow. Um, I think the reality is, is that there are more people than, you know, we should have here at this company. Because he gave like a long presentation on uh, basically saying, hey, we need to cut back. We need people, I think, back in the office a few days a week. We need to change all these things. And then somebody asked a question that got leaked during their Q&A if they were still going to have their, you know, whatever, week, uh, you know, few weeks a year off or whatever. And he was like, mm-hmm. wow, uh, I think uh, the reality is that we have too many people working here or people working here that shouldn't be working here. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's mostly the kind of thing that happens um, during a boom. And that's the danger. It's really hard. Um, normally it gets fixed when they replace the manager who hired them. But the it's hard when you have managers who hired a bunch of people, made a bunch of decisions, you know. I mean, you're seeing that now with um, a different way, not with people. But you're seeing it with uh, Discovery, Warner Brothers, and changes at Warner Brothers in terms of who's running things. And so they're very free to get rid of um, projects that those people greenlit, cut things that were their favorite projects, all that kind of stuff. That doesn't happen as much when they were the things that you did in the first place. So usually you need some kind of turnover there. So that's more what you'll see with some of the companies where you see them report good sales but bad margins and stuff like that. Our expenses are a bit too high. We got too fat uh, uh, with those things during covid they may replace some people, you know, we've said the transition, this person out of this job and someone else in that's when there's a real opportunity to see, you know, cuts and see things get more efficient. So we've had a few questions. I grouped, these are from two different individuals, but I grouped them into one. Um, when we were talking about picking a strategy that fits your personality and somebody asked, Jeff talked about knowing the style of investment that suits you. Can you please talk about the types of value investment styles and what type of personality is best for each? And then somebody else had asked, I really like the pod where you guys spend time talking about self-actualizing as an investor. I feel like it's not talked about enough, but maybe drives 50% of an investor's performance. So do you have any sort of follow-up on this topic of knowing thyself (laughs) as an investor and what that means? I mean, you've spoken to so many different investors over the years. I imagine you have some sort of thoughts on this topic. Yeah, I think it's the most important thing, pretty much. Um, I mean, we t- the other one you talked about earlier, you know, actually doing the work, engaging every day with it, like we're talking about with Buffett with 10Ks and stuff. Yes, that's the most important in a sense, too. But it's the combination of those two. You can do that all you want, and you won't get you good results if it's not lined up your style and your personality. Um, the issue is when people pick an approach that doesn't that they can't carry out. Because it doesn't match with their um, their temperament, but also what they like doing every day, um, what they're willing to stick with. And so it could be, you know, I don't know exactly what you compare it to, but um, to me, I think it's a lot of times when people ask like, oh, does, is that, you know, I'm sure that, in fact, I know that people do these things, but they're like, oh, this diet is better than this diet this exercise thing is better than this one here's the exact here's the exact optimum one right it doesn't really Mm. matter because as long as it's a bunch of ones that are you know good enough if so if it works uh if it's perfect for you doing it and you're going to execute it 100 percent for indefinitely 
then it will work for you. And if it's the best one that there is, but you can't implement it, it won't work for you. And there's a lot of questions I get about things like what is the exact best approach with net nets, you know? Um, and the truth is it doesn't really matter because virtually everyone I talk to, there's a few exceptions and they're very special people who have a special uh, style and a special personality, except for those, no one is going to put much of their money into net nets. They're not going to stick with it. They'll do it for a little while, but they won't stick with it and they won't put a large part of their portfolio in it. Putting a large part of your portfolio into a net net strategy that is somewhat less optimal still improves your returns a lot compared to putting into some index. You can see that in studies that have been done over decades all around the world. So the question that I asked people was like, okay, it doesn't matter what the best way of investing in nets is. It matters what's the way that's going to keep you doing it for the rest of your investing career. Because if you find that approach that even puts 10%, 20%, whatever of the total amount that you might pick for stocks, let's say, into that, that's going to have a bigger impact than you trying to say, oh, I can get 5% more a year if I use this approach and that approach. That might be true, but like sometimes that approach is uh, being in countries all over the world, including ones you have no experience in. It could be um, including net nets that lose money when you buy them. For some people, that will work and that might improve their returns if they did that. For a lot of people, it will turn them off net nets completely because they can't handle that kind of thing. Uh, they can't handle being invested in something in Asia when they're in the United States or being invested in something that loses money or being invested in things that are in industries they never heard of or anything like that. Whereas there may be a, a diet of net nets that you can create that would keep them owning some all the time. And that has a bigger um, result for them. There's a lot of it comes down to, I mean, maybe you could go over what you see as the different types of value investment styles. What what ones do you think of when people think of what are investing, uh, value investing styles? Net nets, um, book buying based on book value. Um, I don't think a lot of investors, I mean, I think our value, our definition of value investing is different than other investors' definition of value investing. I mean, not to be, I mean, look, what we are trying to do, especially in public is very hard. In 2022, definitely more than I could certainly remember. There's a lot of investors that are down a pretty significant amount this year. And, you know, when I speak to prospective investors, I tell them, I'm like, us literally paying up is paying 15 times earnings, maybe, right? Mm -hmm. Like in our presentation, it says like, look, generally speaking, think a PE of 13 times. Um, and I think a lot of other investors have really benefited from 0% interest rates, basically being long the market in some form and multiple expansion. I was going to tweet this the other day, but I didn't because I don't want to be a jerk. But it was a thought that I did think about. How many investors would know how their portfolio is doing just from looking at the S&P 500 and seeing if it's up or down on the day? So, oh, I'm looking at the S&P 500. I see that it's up, you know, a percent. I know my portfolio is probably up a percent. Right. I can look at the S&P 500 and say, oh, it's down a percent. I know that my portfolio, without looking at it, is probably down a percent. The interesting thing about the way that we invest and where we focus on is I never have any idea how the portfolio <laughs> is going to be doing just from looking at what the markets are doing, which right. is something that I think is really interesting because I think that means that we're probably doing something different. 
Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, different investing styles, I don't know. Like, I think our style of value investing is is different than others in the sense that, you know, we, we don't, we're not paying, you know, 10 times sales for a company. We're not buying growth at any price. And in 2022, you're seeing a lot that a lot of investors were really sort of, um, you know, sheltered from the markets and record low interest rates. I mean, like my question is, I mean, who do you think is someone that should focus on net nets? Like, what is that type of personality? I mean, I think Walter Schloss, right? He focused on, you know, net nets in a different approach, more of a, like a Benjamin Graham approach his whole career. And it was like, he worked, I think like nine to five. He didn't think about yeah. investing too much outside of, you know, market hours. Um, and then you have somebody like you, somebody like Buffett that pretty much thinks about investing 24 seven, you know, a more qualitative approach to investing. Um, so I think like from the personality standpoint, it's really finding a strategy that looks like work to everybody else, but feels like play to you. Right. So Jeff, I know you'd be doing exactly what you do every single day if you didn't have to do it, even though mm -hmm. I don't think you necessarily have to do it. Like this is just what you would be doing, right? Buffett's the same way. Somebody that's 92 years old and still doing this. I think that uh, really proves that point. And I've been thinking a lot, Jeff, about mm -hmm. like the podcasts that we did in, you know, end of 2020 to beginning of 2021, all these investors were up, you know, hundred plus percent. And you said on the podcast, <laughs> you said the thing is with people that are up, if you look historically, investors that produce these types of returns, they're usually out of business a few years later. Yeah. And it's almost always true. If you're up a hundred percent, I mean, it can happen. But a mutual fund, let's say, that's up over 100% usually isn't in business a few years later. Yeah. And why is that? Is that because the chickens eventually come home to roost? Uh, what they were well, doing, they were taking too much risk? Because the strategy has to be really strange to get you up over 100% in something like a mutual fund. Now, obviously, you could do it with a couple investments, right? So like a Buffett at one time had like three stocks in Berkshire or something or, you know, so like things like that could happen where if you're just analyzing a portfolio, it's theoretically possible. But um, that's why, because it has to be a very strange specific strategy. And um, it also usually has to involve a significant amount of momentum because the other forces in the market aren't really strong enough in the short term to cause that much of a boost to a portfolio. Um, so other forces, other factors, you know, the quantitative investors call them, but these other forces um, do are stronger in the longer run, but never have as much of an effect. So like value is a very strong force over time, but can't be that strong in any one year. As you can see for, you talked about multiples and about, um, earnings results and stuff. We've had stocks where the earnings have gone up and sometimes the multiple has followed it and sometimes it hasn't. But what stocks have their earnings going up 100% a year? Um, mm -hmm. And if they did, they would be at really high multiples. So sometimes it's a very specific strategy that's unusual. So like one that was up like 100% a little while ago was, um, if you looked, almost all the portfolio was... Um, very high total addressable market or whatever frontier emerging whatever technologies markets some pre-commercialized and stuff um where the companies everything in the portfolio was losing money so it had to be a money losing startup right and so maybe all that that strategy of just being money losing startups that could go up 100 percent in a year 
But obviously, there's a year where that does really badly. Buffett doesn't have an approach that could ever be up 100%. Because he's never had a strategy that would ever in any single year be up 100%. Um, it is possible with some strategies if you pick very exact dates. So, like, for instance, coming out of the... Um, you know, I, I ran screens for some things with like what net, net things to use and stuff at times backtesting them. And it is true that if you picked like from the worst point of 2009, the absolute market bottom for a year, there are reasonable portfolios of net nets that were up 100%. But on a, like a calendar year basis normally, which is more of a random thing, it's more like 50% or something, you know. Um, that's the other thing. When we're talking about being up 100% a year, that's also a calendar year thing, which is much harder to do. The media likes to cite these things, which always use as of the bottom of something to as of the top. So it's a lot easier to achieve, you know, um, bear markets and bull markets and things if you pick the exact right day. You know, course, when we were yeah. talking about frost there, <laughs> it's up three and a half times from that one day. But a month before that day, it was way higher. You only had that price for like, you know, literally a day and you only had prices near it for a couple of weeks. So... Calendar year is much tougher because it's more of a normal uh, period to pick. And so it's not as of a particular day. And so it's much stranger for percentage changes to be like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, you remember reading from, I'm sure the Buffett biographies and stuff talked a little bit about the go-go years and all that. You had funds that were up by huge amounts and literally within three years were gone. From recent memory, I've never seen so many value funds or whatever, what I would consider to be value funds underwrite or pitch stocks, whatever that, you know, buy it at, you know, 25 times earnings and you're going to sell it at 25 times earnings or buy it at 30 times earnings. And in their models, they're like, and you know, the exit multiple is 30 times earnings. I don't know. Right. I don't think that's really a value investor. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, so I don't know. So that's one way I look at style. And one of the easiest ways I think is to ask people, if you have to compromise on one of these, which one do you compromise on first? So what you're saying, basically, those people, they, there may be other factors involved with what they do. But one of the things they may be is they may be quality investors. They could also be growth. They could also be momentum. They could, there could be a bunch of different things. But often it's quality that as the market gets more expensive, they're not willing to compromise on the quality of the businesses that they want to own. They only want to own the best businesses. And so the prices keep going up and up. For others, it's the opposite. Um, it is the price that they're not willing to move on. And so you may be trying to invest at the same prices in uh, 2015 that you could get in 1975, you know? And if you do that, then the quality of the businesses that you own is going to go down more and more over time. Net nets are a good example of that because if you look at the kind of net nets that Ben Graham owned, they were a lot better than the kind of net nets that people can find today. Um, because a pure screen thing is not giving quite the net nets that he was picking because there were just a lot more of them. So it was easier to take a reasonable sample from them and not have this thing that was skewed towards frauds and things like that. Cause there were hundreds of them when he was doing it at times. Um, I'd also say there's contrarian investors. I get that a lot where it isn't really the price, but it has to be something that's kind of hated. Right. So they like to be um, contrary, but they might buy something that's at a high price. It's just down a lot or something like that. You know, they're attracted more by something that's dropped a lot in price than something that's about having a low price. There are some investors that are more macro oriented um, in the sense that 
they will get out of stocks or um, get into them in some cases um, based on like their expectations for there'll be a recession this year, next year, or whatever, or their feelings about interest rates or whatever, much more so because um, they think about those things and, and um, worry about them a lot more. And uh, then you also have, I'd say, in terms of style, you also have ones who are very, very buy and hold. And then you have ones who like to trade the stock more. So that's one thing to ask. One of the things to ask people um, is sort of what their attitude is about mistakes and losses, you know. But the other one is about kind of booking gains. Because for a lot of people, it's um, they may not think about it this way, but unconsciously, subconsciously, um, there is a positive experience to uh, being right. And so if you bought a stock, it goes up, you sell it, it went up more than the market, you know, you sold it. Then that is a, um, yeah, you get a check mark for that, that that is, you know, you were successful doing that. But see, on a um, hundred bagger, you would get that when it goes from one to two, but also you would get the same thing from two to four, four to eight, eight to 16, you know. There's a lot of those doublings. And for a lot of people, it's not doubling. It's if it was up 30 to 50%, they would sell, you know? So if you're that kind of investor, it's going to be very hard to be buy and hold because one thing that happens with buy and hold is you often have large losses relative to your highest ever price, right? Like you may be still sitting on very big gains, but you always have to face the fact that you know, not always, whenever the stock's making new highs, which is a lot of the time, you you don't have to face it. But in any bad market, um, you're going to be facing the fact that, oh, I could have sold 30%. I, you know, I'm down 30% from the absolute high, that perfect day where I could have sold. Now, you still may be up several times in the stock, but there are people that that will bother them a lot. And so that's more trading-oriented people. And there's a lot of value investors I know who really are value investors, uh, or I should say value oriented, but they're not really investors. Um, they are traders. Yeah. And that obviously can work. I mean, um, trading on value, you know, that's what a lot of systems do. I mean, um, wouldn't you say that's what a lot of like long short funds do? Yes. I mean, they're constantly shuffling the decks around mm-hmm. and, uh, and, you know, doing portfolio management and all sort of things like that. Yeah. A lot of successful hedge funds over time implement a bunch of different strategies and many of them in a more simple way are implementing value type things. Um, And they make a lot of sense and I don't have any problem with them. Um, And I think that's great as a system to use, but I think that it's not, you know, the style that we happen to use or like a Buffett thing or whatever it is different value is just like a cheapness, relative cheapness. Like I was saying about the commodity thing, betting on a certain commodity because it's cheap versus all other commodities that year is, uh, I mean, like I said, I have a spreadsheet where I would look at that. I would want to know that number. I don't make that decision to bet speculatively on commodities, but if I had to do it, I suppose I would probably bet on, uh, the commodities that are most out of line with relative to other commodities and that start moving in a positive direction. So that is very cheap. And then it starts to have some sort of momentum that if I had to be a speculator, that's what I would do. And that's a value uh, strategy. It's a value momentum, but it's a speculative strategy. You know, I don't know how to value commodities. In fact, 
you know, mm-hmm. that's what I'm saying. I have no idea what the correct price is for commodities. I wouldn't know how to come up with it for for oil or something. But you, it's not like doing a DC, uh, doing a you know cash flow based analysis of the companies. Uh, Buffett said that with gold. That doesn't mean that he thinks you should short gold. He just means I don't know how to buy it. I don't know how to price it. Yeah, I think it's just different. Let's say if you buy a company that is a great business, number one. But let's say you buy it at you know thirteen or fifteen times free cash flow, and let's say you know they do participate in a sell-off in the market and now it's you know uh, 10 to 12 times free cash flow it's a lot different to own a business like that versus mm-hmm. owning a business that you bought at 10 times sales and now it's down 50 percent, and they still you know don't have some sort of economic floor within the business you know right. yeah you're basically betting on rates going back down and then the whole beauty contesting now investors will be more long dated and bid these stocks up mm-hmm. Uh, that's a different game, I think, uh, that a lot of investors or that other investors play than what we play. You know, it's like if I owned a house and I felt like it was a great investment, and now the market sells off and the value mm-hmm. of my house is twenty percent lower or whatever it is, I'm like, well, it's still a two thousand square foot house, has three bedrooms, three bathrooms, and right. uh, the area around it isn't deteriorating. Well, whatever, who cares, right? Like over ten years, you're not going to lose money on something like that, right? If if you're really going to do that, right? And with houses, it's easier for people to be realistic about that. But there's a ton of investors who um, think in terms of being an investor, but are really going to trade it that way. And so that's why I always try to ask them questions that I think will help that way. Like, how would you feel about this if it was down 50%? How would you feel about if this headline came out or that headline, you know? Um, and, and sometimes that that helps get an idea of uh, how they would feel in terms of risk. Um, the, for us talking about it, I think people's impression of our approach is that we're more quality driven than we may be. I think we're pretty quality driven, but certainly that's the feeling that people give when they talk to me and they underestimate how price sensitive we are. Um, because we'll talk about lots of stocks and I'll talk about the qualities of stocks, but see, I won't actually buy them unless I think they're pretty cheap. Um, and I'd mm-hmm. say that is a similar thing to Buffett. Like someone was asking about that where I said, you know, they were asking about like his hurdle rates and things like that. And I did point out that there's very little evidence of him actually paying up. Like when he says paying up, it's not nearly as much as when other value investors say paying up throughout a period of many decades. So it's true that he'll buy the average price stock that he really loves instead of the super cheap stock that has warts on it. But this idea that he's paid up for like, um, like premium prices, that's just not very common. And so we're much more in that old school thing about it. We're pretty um, anchored to low multiples, I think. Um, mm-hmm. Value type multiples, not paying above the historical market multiples usually for a stock. And that doesn't mean that that's right. If you can, if you can figure it out, um, that you can kind of look into the future of a company that's really exciting in terms of having a really good business and it's growing really fast. You know, we there've been ones that people have asked about before. We talked about that one, the um, that did the live casino online thing. Um, some other ones like that. That's the sort of thing that if you're right, and you'll know in a couple of years, uh, if if you've been right enough because it's growing fast enough, um, you'll do amazingly even if you pay high multiple. Right? We talked about. Right, exactly, yeah. And I've many times given examples like, look, even simpler businesses 
Starbucks, Southwest Airlines. I think there may have been a couple decades at which they weren't ever a value stock and yet performed beautifully. So, they, I mean, literally, it could have been 20 years that you could have bought on any day and it would have done okay. Mm-hmm. I wonder what the base rates are, though, for paying per, <laughs> higher than like a market multiple, though, instead of like being more strategic about the multiples you pay. Well, there's a reason why I say never pay more than 10 times sales. You know, um, there are certain numbers that have such terrible base rates, right? Um, so someone asked me about FICO. They said, you talk about it and stuff, you know, when do you, do you, um, uh, but I was wondering like, what exact price do you like it at and stuff like that? Cause I mentioned that I bought it one time and sold it way too soon. Um, however, the truth is that I, I, going back, I tried to calculate what it was. It was certainly less than two times sales that I paid. And it's probably around 1.7 or something. Cause it traded there for like three years. So I probably just paid an average price for those three years. Um, it's up more than, let's see, what is it up? It's up more than 20, I don't know, 20, 23 times or something since where I bought it. So obviously I should have kept it, uh, you know, but instead sold it when it was doubled or something, um, you know, in a year or something instead of in 10 years, but still, um, <laughs> yeah. still a mistake. But I kind of subscribe to the Munger thing that I will hold a stock at a price that I would not buy it. I will not hold it at 10 times sales though. So I would have gotten off the uh, FICO train no matter what as it approached those kinds of price to sales. But should I have owned it at four times that I wasn't going to own it at eight. But, you know, um, maybe. Yeah. I, I mean, and so it, figuring out exactly what price is the right price to pay for it, I don't know. Um, I thought that under two times sales at the time, it was like a 10% free cash flow or something was really, really clearly good. And. I don't know if I would have thought that at four times. I'm sure I wouldn't think it at eight, which is more where it trades today. So we talk about companies like this. We, you know, obviously if it grows like it's been growing the last few years, or uh, the earnings growing like they have in the last few years, um, then it can justify almost any multiple, you know. But, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I don't pay those kinds of prices, which means it eliminates huge parts of the market. I mean, if you think if you think about it, more than half the market is priced too high for us all the time usually uh, it's not even a question of quality and then most of the you know easily we take only the top half in terms of business quality usually so just imagine quality and value without me even really analyzing companies we've cut out three quarters of the market okay so over to twitter um uh, we could start with the first question to be able to ask a question in the future follow me on twitter at, at focused compound uh someone says do you have to be able to articulate the bear case for a cheap stock, or are companies sometimes cheap simply because the sector slash industry is out of favor for no clear reason? This is one where uh, I like the idea of it, right? But just in practice, I found it really hard to articulate the bear case sometimes. And there's two reasons for this. One, being able to articulate the bear case and saying it's stupid, right, is no defense. It's still no defense of, you know, being um, long the stock. You know, as I've said uh, before, like, um, you know, if there's a court case, right, saying, well, that was just the most idiotic defense I've ever seen. Sure, the prosecution wasn't any good, but we should convict him because it was such a terrible defense, right? That doesn't really make sense. Um, and the same thing here. Sometimes there are things where the, the bear case may be very dumb and I might be able to state it. And so it might give me more confidence. And I do worry about that. Um, the other thing is I do find for me that I feel like I'm just kind of... Um, uh, jumping at th- 
at uh, imaginary things in terms of trying to come up with a case sometimes. Sometimes I think it's easy. Give the example of the one that stands out of socks we've talked about before now is Virtu Motors, right? It trades below tangible book value, trades fairly cheap. Um, I don't really know why it's that cheap. Uh UK stocks are a bit cheaper than US stocks generally. UK car ma- car dealers even cheaper than US car dealers. Car dealers have been a little cheap. UK car dealers have been cheap for like five or six years, uh, something like that. Um, but it doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense because like, for instance, Virtu is one of these stocks that is not as overlooked as most things we own. So there are actually some analyst estimates for it. They're, they're not, you know, this isn't JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs and stuff, but there are some estimates of that. You can find other people talking about the stock, whatever. Um, they're like pessimistic looking out a year or two from now. So not even the year that you're currently in where they don't may, may think they still earn a lot of money, but like say a year or two down the road, that would still price it at like seven times those earnings of a few years out, right? They still think it will earn a little bit more after COVID than it did before. Um, so the answer is like, I don't know. Um, I can try to imagine like the easiest thing to imagine, of course, is some of the things is, well, it already went up a bunch, right? Um, mm-hmm. they don't want to be in the industry. Makes sense. A very obvious one is they know that next year's results, this current year's results have to be a lot worse than the past year. Sometimes I feel like that is one I can come up with. So when I have nothing else that I know about a stock, sometimes the one I can find is it's going to be down a bunch, sort of like Buffett said with Disney and Mary Poppins. There are sometimes stocks where everything about it sounds good, except last year's earnings were so amazing. This year won't be as good as that. It's a down year. Sometimes there are people who never want to own a stock while its earnings are contracting, even if they know that after that earnings will do well. So maybe that's it. Um, what do you think about this issue? I mean, how many stocks are just always, they're just cheap because the perception of them is that they're boring and that they always will be cheap as well, right? In Micro cap land, especially some of these stocks, they just, yeah. I think the shares turn over eventually to other investors because, you know, the initial investors, they just think it's going to be cheap always. And it's never going to trade at some sort of crazy market multiple or market premium multiple. And I think that's tough to hold for a lot of investors uh, when you have years like 2020 and 2021, where basically everything else is going to the sky, you know? Um, I love it when we come across a company and you look at the valuation fits within our range and you look at like the stock chart and, you know, either the valuation has actually come down because the price has gone nowhere and the business has continued to improve. The growth investors probably ran for the hills. The, uh, shareholder base has turned over to more patient investors. I think that's a very, um, interesting time to look at a company, right? Like we've talked about how We probably look at stock charts more than other people look at stock charts, not because we're doing technical analysis, but really because it just kind of tells you a lot about the shareholder base, who owns it, different times when maybe the company has gone through panic situations. Mm -hmm. But I love when we come across companies in the chart, it's just basically kind of up until the right without too many blips, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, But then we get interested maybe when... Um, there has been a pullback valuations have come down. The growth investors are gone and now it's, you know, for whatever reason, it's in value territory, but really the business hasn't changed that much. It's just been all about like the expectations of the business in the future. Uh, the business has just been chugging along, earning a decent return on equity, you know, 
not a crazy high amount of growth, but like decent growth. And, uh, you know, that's a good, uh, situation. But as for the bear case, I mean, yeah, you could read maybe sometimes different write-ups or what people are saying on, uh, on the internet about it. But I think when Jeff said that a lot of it is because they think earnings next year are going to be less than the previous year. That's typically, I think why people, uh, you know, sell the stock or because they think, okay, well, I will be able to buy it back at a lower price. Yeah. So for the stocks where I've been able to articulate the bear case, well, I would say uh, they have been stocks that have moved up or down a lot more, a lot faster. Uh, They haven't been as much the stocks that paid off a lot for the really long term. So it's not like ones that had some clear bear case explains why I was able to get a stock that turned out to do really well for the next five or 10 years. But sometimes it does give you an opportunity of things that will do well in the next year ahead. Uh, I would say though, that where I was able to save the bear case and thought I was right about it, it does have a surprising number of the worst investments in it. So like people have asked, like does high short interest for for, uh, instance, um, can you figure out looking at your past results, whether that helps or hurts? Uh, I actually, could only figure out that it means it will be a more volatile end result. But some of my biggest successes and biggest failures are both in ones with high short interest, for instance. Mm-hmm. What's interesting, though, now is, I guess, our framework, low share turnover, low beta, you don't get a lot of these names that are crazy trading vehicles, no. uh, simply because there's still liquidity is not right. there. So it's pretty uh, sleepy uh, most of the time, which, you know, obviously is good because you could sometimes find... Uh, I don't know. I just love it. I think it's more comfortable. And again, maybe this is like the whole investing psyche, right? For me, it's more comfortable to, you know, purchase a stock that even if it's near all-time highs, or maybe it's pulled off all-time highs, but it's at a cheaper valuation than buying a stock that like is just like gone down like 30 or 40% over, you know, six months or a year. Um, I like the stocks that it's just business (laughs) as usual, sleepy, the shares don't turn over much. So you don't get all these speculative traders coming in. The growth of the company is not like 20% a year. So you don't attract growth investors. Mm-hmm. I just like sleepy, overlooked um, companies like that. Yeah, you make a good point on that one. We don't mention a lot. Uh, one thing that's different than people might expect about us is we probably have made more purchases closer to all-time highs than people might think, which sounds odd because we also tend to buy at low multiples. But that is a combination that's fairly common, reasonable multiple, but actually not that far from all-time highs as opposed to near all-time lows is probably a fairly rare thing that we would purchase. Mm -hmm. Because there's a lot of individuals that if it's at all-time high, like, ah, maybe I'll wait for a pullback. Yeah, we don't care about that as as it's the multiple. Yeah, Yeah, it's the multiple, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, next question. How does an investor distinguish between inherent personal biases and circle of competence? And he says, fit of an investor in a particular stock situation, question mark. Should an investor work on their biases or should one simply avoid situations where they are prone to fail? I would say the cowardly one that you should avoid the situations where you're prone to fail. I would say avoid too. I'm more skeptical (laughs) of people's ability to change as people than than most people seem to be. You know, like more uh, in general, I think people uh, believe that personality is more malleable and stuff than I do um it might be malleable when you're really really young but by the time people start investing usually they're pretty set in terms of 
certain very basic biases about uh, confidence in their own work, about risk that they're taking, um, optimism and pessimism, um, reliance on math and a hard type approaches versus soft approaches, um, some things like that. There's other ones that are harder to explain, paranoia type things. Some people are more into that. Um, I guess things that people would call like um, mm, neuroticism, I guess, with some of the things associated with that versus people who believe largely in outcomes due to their what they themselves um, have control over it, which sometimes can lead some people to think that because they did a lot of work on something, it's going to work out well for them. When obviously, if it's a good decision, whether you spent a thousand hours um, working on it or 10, you know, it's, it's going to work out the same way for you. It's just a question of the decision that you made. Um, so, and there's a spectrum of people all along that way. Um, in terms of circle of competence, like whether you understand some particular things well enough, I think that could probably be um there's things you could learn about that i think you could expand what industries you invest in and maybe sometimes what kinds of situations you invest in in terms of understanding the business i think you can understand different kinds of businesses i'm not sure you can really change the the, the style you're in in terms of the value investing styles we talked about buffett did but um to some extent but i think that's hard i think it's hard to move from being contrarian trading type person to a long-term investing quality type person. I think that would be a really unusual move. It's not impossible, but it's almost impossible. I don't really know people have done that. How much of an investor style do you think also has to do with when they started investing? So like Benjamin Graham, Mm -hmm. for example, that basically had a strong memory of the depression. I think Buffett had said that he always invested the way that he did because of you know, that memory cuts so deep for him. I know another individual that I think he started his career in the late nineties and he experienced the tech boom and crash Mm -hmm. and then oh eight in the crash. So he's kind of always bearish on the market, no matter what. Um, so much of your style or so much of the way that you think about investing could really come from as well. Like when you started investing, what you were exposed to the time that you began, do you think that would be true? Yes. I think that's really, I mean, I think the thing that teaches the most is positive experiences that you have. I mean, negative experiences may too, but, but making money, uh, doing it again and again in the same sort of thing, seeing something that repeats itself that way, making money in one thing, one time, a certain way, I don't think will matter as much. But if you start to, um, do a bunch of, let's say you do a bunch of net nets and they work out one after another, you know, then that really is something that you keep approaching it that way. Or stocks that were um you know meme stocks or whatever same sort of thing doing it once i don't think will have much of an effect on people but there's some people who probably did it five or six times it may have been five or six times or a period of weeks or months but still it does train you a certain way um so i think that's probably the biggest thing uh i guess though i would say you should try to some extent to be aware of Um, What I try to do, I would say, is to look at things objectively, analytically, um, as opposed to uh, as what I think is driving the uh, underlying results, as opposed to what we talked about with like the resulting idea of like what's made a lot of money for me and to work against that. So in a sense, trying to change your approach more often than you might think you should, Uh, because chances are 
that if you have an approach that's working really, really well in certain ways right now, uh, it is a good time to change that. What I mean is if you if you bought those net nets in 2009, you know, and they're up 100% or whatever, like I just said, that's actually a good time to think about, well, maybe should I be thinking more about quality and things like that then? If you were in the things that really helped you in a crash that were very defensive and stuff, you might actually be thinking, okay, I feel good about that, but should I be looking at other things uh, that way? And I think the only way for me to do that is by looking at like what's actually driving underlying results. So being aware that, okay, I've made a lot of money in this stock, right? But actually the earnings didn't go up that much. It's just multiple expansion. And I was betting on the earnings going up a bunch. So maybe I shouldn't take that as seriously that I did well in that, you know, and look at something else. Mm -hmm. Okay. Next question. Besides wealth, what drives you to be an investor, Jeff? Well, the answer they have underneath there is the intellectual exercise. And I would say mm -hmm. uh, that's, that's pretty much nailed it. Yeah. I would say it. it's longevity. So longevity for me okay. and like every aspect that comes with it. Longevity for cognitive function. I don't want to be a person that eventually <laughs> retires and then sits and watches, you know, Fox News or CNN. I'm playing both sides right. all day and like, you know, bitches about the world. So cognitive function, longevity, um, independence, wealth, longevity. I think it's interesting. I think there's a lot of people. I think what's the exact stat? Like after high school, after college, they... Um, you know, the average person reads like less than a book a year or something like that. Yeah. And I think That's honestly, funny. if you speak to like the average person that kind of shows even in the way <laughs> that they speak. Um, so I don't know. I just, I like the lifelong pursuit of knowledge and I think investing is a, a great outlet to carry that out. Yeah. Just always be pushing ahead, you know, brick by brick, step by step where you could look back and look at yourself a few years ago and be like, wow, like I have grown a lot and i have hopefully gotten better in this you know aspect of my life or just continuing just to push on and and you know get better every single year i think that's interesting so i think investing is something that i mean obviously it is we both would be doing even if we weren't running a fund i don't know i don't ever wake up and think oh my gosh i have to go to work today <laughs> you know what i'm saying so no. it's it's like play to me. And that mm -hmm. play could even be reading a book. I mean, right now I'm reading a yeah. book, uh, grinding it out about McDonald's. Mm -hmm. I read a book about, uh, Chick-fil-A. I read Jared Kushner's memoirs and I thought oh. it was interesting to learn a little bit more about government. <laughs> oh, we just lost everyone, Jeff. We just lost them. <laughs> um, I don't know. I just think it's interesting how it's all, it's all relatable, you know, just continuing to learn, continuing to be exposed to different ideas. And uh, it's fun. I think it keeps things interesting, keeps it all fun. Uh, have you noticed biases lately investing for other people's money in a bear market? Hmm, that's a very good question. Uh, I'm not sure the answer to that. I mean, the only, the only one I would think of is not wanting to... I'm not sure that there is a bias this way. But the one that I think of that might be present is not wanting to um, realize a loss, you know, sell something at a loss to do something else or whatever with it. But I mean, um, because you just have more things where that's possible because, you know, obviously before we had a bear market, we, I mean, we had a fairly new fund, fairly new managed accounts and things. Um, you just generally didn't have things that were losses, you know, typically for people 
um, that you held. So it wasn't and every, anything you'd be selling would be at a gain. So th- that's the only one I can think of. I'm not sure that it is one. It's just one that I'm aware of and thinking about. Um, what's the biggest red flag you see with management teams that others think is a good sign? Hmm. That's a very good question. Um, that others think is a good sign. Probably in the way that they communicate. Yes. No. In the way that they communicate is correct. Yes. That's hard to explain to people, but yes, that's true. Uh, yeah, it's actually surprising that this is one on which we talked about being a contrarian and stuff. I'm definitely contrarian on management teams. The ones that a lot of people like, I, I don't like as much and it's hard to explain to them, but it has to do mainly in their communication, but also some other things. Um, okay. So like, let's expand on that. I mean, like what about management teams? Do you not like what they do or when they do something? Well, so I think my focus is mainly on about how they communicate, how honest they are and what their attitudes are about how candid they are and stuff and that what their attitudes are about certain things more than necessarily how competent they are. Sometimes evaluating how competent they are, but that's a little hard to judge as much as personality things. Um, I think some people, I guess, like them when they're more uh, um, promotional or whatever things that way. Um, But like a recent one that someone was showing me and was fairly optimistic about them. I didn't like um, that. They had some, a lot of really connected people, relatives and some other people through other social connections. I think that were most of the board from early on um, that they got a lot of stock to themselves um, and others and that they had multiple classes of shares and that they had, um, but in particular, what I didn't like is some very minor related party transactions from very early on. And that really bothered me uh, because if you're getting paid, let's say you got your, gave yourself $27 million in stock or something. Why do you need like a $2 million loan um, with like the collateral being like your stock or the, in the company or something like that and on special terms, you know, that kind of thing would really worry me a lot. Um, and to other people be like, yeah, it's not a big deal, but they probably, because the whole, you know, they feel entitled to it and everyone else is doing it there and, and whatever. But, um, but there's a few that were like that. I, I do have a big thing about the, um, uh, barring against your stock to an extreme extent that bothers me. And there's a couple companies where people did that. We mentioned it once with a company that went private, a very reasonably run lifetime. company, lifetime fitness, <laughs> The uh, someone running it there uh, was pretty unreasonable in terms of the leverage applied to the position, maybe to live on it, maybe to do other things with it. I don't know exactly, but just the absolute level of it was a way of running personal finances that was really risky compared to how they were running the corporate finances. So you could argue, well, what does that really matter to the shareholders and stuff? Chesapeake had stuff like that too, right? Um, So some of those just... You know, th- th- some of them stand out. It's not, well, what's the big deal about it? But it's such an extreme attitude about risk in that case. And in the one that I mentioned, it just seems such an extreme attitude of, well, I can do this, so I will. You know, it's mm-hmm. what I meant with the related party transaction. Um, it's just like odd. And sometimes there are little perks like that 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 are weird to me when you're getting all these other things. Um, and so it worries me. What does it mean? Sometimes it just means, you know, they're very needy and, and need to have the best office and the, you know, little perks of things. What was it? Fresh flowers and stuff that we were talking about. Um, you know, things like that, that show that they're appreciating that whatever. And okay. That's just their, what their personality is. Okay. But some of the others, yeah, it just sometimes it says other things about them. And I think, 
sometimes people present me things with things to see as really positive about management where I feel that managing is ma- management is managing the investors more so. And I do worry when management knows how investors think and what words to use. It's a lot easier if they don't know what things you're focused on. I always say that, you know, like it's best to have a measurement that isn't a target, right? If management is talking about net income, net income, net income, never mentions free cash flow, free cash flow looks great. That's a much more powerful signal than management telling you free cash flow, free cash flow, free cash flow, and adjusted free cash flow, whatever thing looks, you know, good. Because they're measuring that, they know to hit that, and it's just not as useful a tool. Um, so more on that, this person asked, he said, what are important questions to ask management slash investor relations that can't be answered by reading an annual report? Um, I think you'd say that investor relations, there's not really, they're not really going to be able to give you stuff that isn't able to be answered in the annual report, mm-hmm. but management, it depends on how you approach them and how you talk to them. You could learn a lot about them. And I think about the culture and stuff like that. I think the actual answers that they give, like to what questions I ask, not that important. Um, the point of the questions is more to get an overall feel for the organization, the philosophy, the people running it. And so those are really what the questions are aimed at prompting them to talk about. Mm-hmm. Right. So I'm not like, say we're looking at some, you know, we we don't happen to be looking at insurers right now, but say I was looking at some insurer or something. What I'm interested in is their attitude about things about underwriting or something, you know what I mean? Rather than what, um, uh, you know, then what are your plans for next year? What percent thing of this or that are you going to do? You know, somebody asked about computer services, a stock that we spoke about on the podcast. He says, CSVI significantly fell in price and trades at 16 times earnings. It's cheap based on historical multiples, but 3% dividend plus 5% growth equals 8% return. Doesn't seem too attractive. Can you talk a little bit about the business? You and Jeff know it well. Well, interestingly, CSI is uh, getting bought out. So what were your reactions or your thoughts to the buyout? Yeah, I mean, I guess it's a surprise in terms of how long the company's been independent. So in that sense, it's a surprise, very long. But, you know, Hunter Douglas taken private and they've been 70 years or something. So it happens to every company eventually, I guess. Um, Yeah, so I'd say that part surprised me. What about you? I... Um, didn't understand it. I thought that the price actually that they're getting bought out for was basically a uh, valuation that they could hit themselves just as business as yeah. usual. I think the private equity firm that is acquiring them is probably just going to take the company public again in the near term and look to capture the core processor multiple. Um, I think all of this is stuff that CSI could have done themselves if they wanted to create value. Um, they could have either uplisted or done something like that. Uh, I think the private equity company that bought them out is getting a really, really good price. And I was very shocked. I created a file for CSI. I didn't upload it to Focus Compounding because I'm like, well, I don't know. I mean, if this keeps going down, we have owned the company before. Jeff knows it well. Maybe this is mm-hmm. something that we could buy again. Uh, but even at like $30 a share, I think I was underwriting without really like multiple expansion or anything like that. Just kind of business as usual, like 15 plus percent returns. Um, so I don't know. I think it was a terrible price to sell out at. I Mm -hmm. think the private equity company is just going to take them public again. I think one of the larger core processors would be interested in purchasing CSI at the price that they sold out at. 
And I don't know. I mean, insiders own like what? 2% of the company. Um, yeah. If you had an insider that owned 20, 30 or 40% or a family that owned that much and had that much skin in the game, I think the outcome here would have been a lot different. I think quite frankly, it was very, I was very shocked to see it go out for the price that it did. Yeah, I think it's just typical of how these LBO things work. Uh, yeah, if they listed on a, you know, it depends. But if they, you listed on a exchange, if you merge with something that was bigger, you know, to be part of something else, um, it's basically, it's a little illiquid. It's not listed, and it's a bit small in terms of just overall size to attract investor attention. But if you, yeah, did a big investor push and you were a uh, on a exchange and everything, then you sure you could probably get the multiple up, but. That might not be what they're most focused on, you know. I mean, they could have just continued doing what they're doing and just bought back stock themselves. I mean, yes, it's I, less liquid, but it's not illiquid. Right. Well, I haven't looked at details and I we may never get details, right? Because um the company doesn't file with SEC at all, right? No, because it's comp- it's always been unlisted. Yeah. So we'll never get details on it. I don't know like what um who's staying on to do what in what incentives they have you know like in the new company and stuff usually you would have some equity given to people and stuff so i mean did they even shop the company it just seems like again <laughs> i mean one of the large, like jack henry someone could have i mean they all trade on multiples like 30 times earnings or well, whatever it is i mean they could immediately buy csi and it would be accretive on day one yeah um it's a big premium i mean usually if you give a big premium to the current stock price you can take it private i mean uh, you know you offer 30 to 50% and usually all the public shareholders will get out of your way. Yeah. But it's not, you know, some high price compared to the all time high and everything, as you can see there. Yeah. A lot um, of people like the quick IRR, but I don't think I, th- it's always better if you feel like you could purchase a business that could grow, you know, 12, 15 plus percent per year, it's better for it to stay public, right? A lot of investors are like, oh, great. Well, I just got this huge... I mean, assuming that you didn't purchase up here when the stock was trading at, you know, 60 bucks or around there, uh, it's always better just to own a business that could compound for years to come as opposed to getting the quick IRR for a buyout. Yeah. I mean, if we go to quick FS on this one, we can show you, I think, um, what the sort of best thing is which is never done but um you were saying they could do this themselves yeah that's uh, an lbo type thing um is usually a way to do what a recapitalization there's other parts to it but in my view it's usually to do a, what a recapitalization could be in public markets which is rarely done nowadays and so it gives you an ability to do the sorts of things that maybe you should have done before as a public company but you wouldn't do so um computer services let's look at the I don't have all the details, you know, here, but it basically has no cash or debt, um, according to this, the EV and the market cap are about That's the correct. same. And if we look at operating margin, uh, I mean, operating profit, that'll be easier because it'll, DNA is not huge for this company, but that's an easy way to do it. They have 80 million. So theoretically, I don't, now markets are not so good right now, um, you know, capital markets for this sort of thing, but it's, you could borrow six times EBIT on a company like this. So 400. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, and the EBITDA um, is a different story. So probably you could borrow a third. Yeah, I, I think that's reasonable. I wouldn't do it as a 
on the company, you know, but certainly this would be a very safe company if it borrowed $250 million. It may borrow $500 million in this case. And you can see that um, that would really do a lot for the stock price, even with this huge premium. I'd have to check, but my guess is that um, the equity that you need to do this is less than what the market cap was before the premium. So the premium we're talking about is money that will be borrowed um, would be my guess. Because if you just look at how incredibly predictable it is, right? Uh, maybe cash flow is the easiest way to do that if we go to the cash flow statement. Um, yeah. So if you see cash flow from operations, which is what you really need to worry about, there's intangibles some property plan equipment that you'd look in there. But basically you see the net issuance of common stock and cash paid for dividends. Um, so that's your cash from financing there. That number is what's available to service your debt. So, and it's mm -hmm. probably something that you can keep rolling over over time. You can keep borrowing again if you need to. Um, so, but on the other we'll hand, we'll see it public again. On the other hand, you know, it would have been a lot better to do this, what, a year and a half ago or something. Mm -hmm. uh, the price wasn't as good, but I mean, in terms of, I don't think. You know, in terms of borrowing and stuff, it's as good now. So I don't think it's improved the deal from what it would have been back then. Mm -hmm. We will see it public again. I'm I sure mean, it's only, day. even if it got a higher multiple, though, it'd be what, a two, $3 billion company? It'd still be a really small company, yeah, compared to its peers. All righty, next question. And kind of more on the same topic. As somebody asked, what are the cons of buying a business with high insider ownership? And are there any red flags that you can watch out for before investing in such businesses? So I don't, uh, companies I invest in often have high insider ownership. That doesn't mean that I like high insider ownership uh, as a general concept, just that if I like management, I like a lot of insider ownership. Yes. Um, because I like that they'll get to do their thing with the company for presumably a long period of time. They'll be free of outside influences that way. And uh, they'll have a lot of influence on things. Uh, I think it tends to sort of amplify the good or bad of management, um, whatever it is, when you have large insider ownership. So if you don't like management, then you don't want them to own a lot of stock. If you do like management, you might want them to own a lot of stock. Occasionally, um, there's some things where you like management in a lot of ways, but not with some respects. Like in a lot of cases, it may mean they're not going to quickly sell the company or something if they have large insider ownership, right? Um, but sometimes that works out because uh, Cambria, UK car dealer, uh, Hunter Douglas, those were huge insider ownership, and they sold out in a way that was a management type participation in the buyout uh, much more so at cambria than at hunter douglas but there's still some participation at hunter douglas so you always could have a management buyout but then that's always you know negative if they do that um i would say that's the biggest one that drives people crazy they love management in every way possible management's always done right by them but then you get to the point where management can do a buyout and now you're on the other side of the table from them so mm -hmm. That's the one that people hate when that happens. When you have great management, that does a management-led buyout because it gets you at an unfortunate price or something like that. Do you think the stocks that we focus on 
sort of by definition have larger insider ownership just because the shares don't turn over as much. So maybe it is an investor that has held the stock for a long time and he's not going to sell. So the float is less. Well, yes, there's two parts of that. So one is just the definition. Yeah, the floats less will result in less starter, right? But the other bigger part of it is, um, you know, it's like the uh, two economists, they see $20 bill on the ground, right? That joke. So why is it cheap? Uh, it's cheap in some cases when we buy into a company because no one can take a run at it. Uh, no one can get involved by owning a small part of the um, percentage of the shares and make a big change to the company. So in other words, it is a opportunity for passive investors to some extent because active investors can't do anything about it. Uh, there have been several companies we've talked about. Some of them we bought, some we haven't and stuff. But like we've said, you know, well, isn't it worth a lot more than it's selling for in the market and, and all that yeah, but there's this guy or whoever who owns a lot of the stock. There's no practical way for someone to force the situation. That's the only reason why something exists that's this cheap versus the market value. So that is another factor. If you have a really good property and it's undervalued in the market for a long time, someone will try to take it over. If they have to approach management and deal with them to buy them out, then that's a different story. Um, what was it like? Might have been even more than seven years ago, but something like that. Um, Landry's made an offer to buy ARC. The only reason we know about it is because they went public with it after they were rejected. Um, presumably, if you didn't have insiders own like 40% of that company, someone like Landry's would have taken ARC out if it was the kind of ownership we saw at computer services in terms of professional management. Without that kind of insider ownership, someone in the restaurant industry would have taken them out, restaurant and casino. Do you prefer then? I mean, so in situations like that, I mean, let's like say the opposite. Would you not invest in a company if insider ownership was very low? No, because sometimes insider ownership could be very low and they can do the right thing. Just as sometimes insider ownership can be really high and they can do the wrong thing. There are some that baffle me. I mean, we've talked about some companies like, I mean, we've talked about some companies where they pay a really high dividend and no one inside the company owns a lot of the stock. It's fascinating why they do it. Their, mm -hmm. their bonus isn't set to it. They're whatever. Like, you know, they could be compensating themselves based on EPS growth and that they pay a really big dividend. Okay. That's, that's great. I mean, for some reason, they're behaving like they were some big owner of it that way, you know? Um, and sometimes you have big owners of companies who aren't focused on um, getting a lot of, uh, uh, of behaving the way that you would think in terms of maximizing the value. I'd say the really big thing is there is an optionality usually to being a very large owner of a company. Blocking stakes are a little different, but let's say a really big, like you actually control the company in some respects. So huge insider ownership and maybe some other ways of influence. Um, so in that case, if you're say the, um, let's use the hundred Douglas example. In that example, do you really care if your multiple is 10 times PE or 20 times? Because if it's 10 times, you can collect your dividends year after year after year. And if you ever want to get, you know, 15 times PE tomorrow, you can call someone up and sell the entire company for that. So you as a private invest, you as a passive investor don't have that influence. You don't have that extra choice and they do. And that's one of the biggest differences. And that drives people crazy the most in terms of timing. While they may say that they care about it, ultimately, you know, 
why should Buffett care what the stock price is at Berkshire on any given day? Unless, as he says, he cares about it in terms of wanting it to be a reasonable price for people entering and exiting the business, uh, stock ownership. So like that people get a fair uh, return that way. Um, But if you're just worried about your own wealth that way, a lot of people say they have this huge incentive and a lot of skin in the game and we're on the same side with all this. That's true up to a point, but the point is you can only sell in the market. They can sell the entire company. If you're talking about someone who's complete control that way. Um, it's a little different in cases where there's multiple large shareholders. If someone can, a lot of times when people say the company's controlled, it's not really controlled. It can stop other people from having control, but it can't really necessarily maintain control under all circumstances. Most the large, when people say large insider ownership, they actually mean um, they're not talking about people owning 40% of the company. They can mean like 17 and stuff, and that's not the same. But it is usually large enough that it would really dissuade some people from trying to um, go active in the company or or do an unfriendly deal or something like that. Next question. Do you have any thoughts on how finance slash investing is taught in universities? Hmm. Well, I don't know much about how it is taught in universities. So, Yeah, I guess I don't either. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you were to teach a class, I mean, we'd just be doing exactly what we're doing here, right? With the podcast, just use quick FS, go through different situations. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's only, um, yeah, I never even took a finance or investing thing. I took some accounting uh, as the only practical thing I took and I took, uh, well, business administration, things like that, but a marketing, um, but I guess in terms of finance investing, the only things related to that I ever took were like, um, economics which is a theory course that doesn't even really believe in value investing as a thing you know a couple of colleges do a couple of universities do but um economics generally doesn't um believe in that level of market inefficiency that we uh, value investors need to practice what we do so it kind of, i mean i think it's mostly everything we're talking about is kind of would not be on the syllabus mm-hmm. and then his next question which we can make this is our last question because we are coming up on two hours. He says, what is the day-to-day like for you and Jeff? How much time is spent researching companies versus running the business? Well, that's easy to answer because there's a division of labor there, um, certainly. I do not spend any time running the business. Is that correct? I would say that's true. I mean, I feel like all I think about is how do we grow focus compounding? Okay, how do we you know, communicate the story better? How can we be doing better by investors? If there's anything for our current investors that we could be doing better, how do we attract the right type of capital? Um, I feel like that's like, it's on my focus compounding is on my mind, basically like a hundred percent of the time. Yeah. And it's not on my mind at all. Um, you know, <laughs> I don't think about any of the things that you said, I don't think about it at all. Um, I figure, you know, research companies try to do the best in terms of investing and then you know, if we do the other things that you're talking about, then that coupled with uh, good results or whatever, um, we'll have what we want to achieve. Um, that's the idea with the division of labor between us that way. Um, mm. I find when people talk about like um, loving what you do and why do you do it, you know, investing and all that, um, that's the biggest difficulty the biggest thing about whether you are enjoying what you're doing is the relationship between those two things right because sometimes they're not in sync that way right so sometimes you're having a great time researching things you're finding companies that you 
like you're buying them, whatever, and that's all going great. But it may be that other things are not doing well. Sometimes performance is not good when you're finding great things that you want to buy. Sometimes performance is good, but you're having a terrible time finding things. You know, sometimes performance will be good and people will be like, oh, you must be loving everything. And no, because you're having a really hard time doing the day-to-day of finding companies, you know? Mm-hmm. Or you're not able to bring in assets at a time when um, it is easy to find things or whatever that way. So I think that's like um, the most difficult thing is in terms of your enjoyment of it is you have to realize that that's not kind of, there's no connection between it. Like you're doing the 10K reading thing every day, no matter what. And you have to realize that when you're looking at like, the snowball and talking about Buffett and everything. So these things where he's finding these great companies and whatever, by the way, it's at a time where he's probably having terrible performance and not bringing any money or whatever. And like, you know, uh, certainly for Munger, that's true for the period in like 73, 74 um, Buffett by then, you know, it's doing Berkshire, but same idea. Other things are going on with people at that time. So um, the most important thing is like being able to stay focused on finding things or looking for things all the time, no matter what. I feel like a lot of times people get very distracted um, by like, say what's going on in the market and stuff. Even when I get emails from people and stuff, that's clear. I think they may spend less time sometimes in like the middle of a brutal bear market thing or something, actually looking at stocks and picking them and stuff and more time reading news and worrying about things and whatever else. Um, As strange as that sounds. Is a lot of their time spent reading news and thinking about how that could affect the businesses that they own in their portfolio where you think they should be really focusing on new ideas because everything is cheap? Uh, No, you're absolutely right. Yes. A lot of it is focused on the things that they um, already own. Yeah. Um, But also there's just a more generalized anxiety thing that you get in the emails. They're more worried about everything. Um, Not just specific things they own, but everything they own and about. um, Yeah. A lot of that sort of thing. Um, in some ways, it's easier. Uh, I'd say I get the most, like, how do I read a 10K, um, process focus things, whatever, emails about that kind of stuff, when the market is calmest. I get those, like, really. I get that kind of thing. How should I spend my day? Um, I find it really easy to do this. Should I do that? Well, how do I expand my sort of competence this way? A lot of those questions that we just dealt with. Um, those kinds of things actually happen the most when markets are really calm and stuff, and I get them way less when markets are either going up a lot or going down. And it's interesting, you know, what ones you get. Because, like, when the market's going up a lot, they're all about, like, um, is it okay to speculate kind of things. That's not exactly how they phrase it, but, like, you know, is it okay that I'm moving away from these value investing things and whatever? And um, you get a lot of that when the market's going up. Yeah. And um, you get less less process things by a lot when the market's going up, even not just down, but even when it's going up. What is your day to day like? Hmm. It's my, maybe the beautiful thing is you don't have such a day to day, right? It's just kind of following your curiosity on whatever companies you want to research. Yeah, I mean, read some, about. some of it is more fo- well, like you said. There is more probably than people think there's more reading of books um, in terms of just have absolute time spent. But um, in terms of and, and then the other thing with day to day is I do spend more time on a specific company maybe 
than people might think so that that's less overall tanker. So for instance, I'm looking at company now, I don't know how likely I am to invest in stuff, but I have like 20 years of uh, reports on it, right? They're not very big reports though, so it won't take that long of a time. Like if it was GE or something, you know, 20 years of reports would take you, <laughs> it'd take you about five times longer than it's going to take me for this company. Yeah. But, um, uh, but so I'll do that kind of thing, you know, and they'll be, but the, the totally new thing, like picking up a 10K of something I've never read before is rarer than you might think, because we do focus on specific kind of sort of area of stocks and things. And for a lot of the companies we like, they've already been public for a long time. So it's not unusual that I'm looking at a company that I've kind of known for 10 or 15 years um, at this point. So it, it's more checking in with things that I already have. Um, but there's less, I read way less 10 Qs than people think. Um, but I do, you know, there's a bunch of companies where I do read the 10K every year. And uh, also read some proxy statements and things like that. So that's probably more than, uh, I mean, we talk about it all the time. So people know I read a lot of 10Ks, but in terms of actual reading of things, the, the number one thing is 10Ks, even more so than earnings transcripts, because we focus more on overlooked stocks. Um, so I would say Where there's no earnings transcripts. Where there's no earnings transcripts, yeah. But there's some tiny ones even. We mentioned ARC. ARC is a tiny, tiny company and it has yeah. an earnings transcripts. So um and those, so for a bunch of companies, I do, I do, you know, earnings transcripts are very easy to read. So I do read all the earnings transcripts for companies that we might look at. Um, uh, let's see. Are there some companies that you follow knowing that you would never invest in the company just to sort of get a picture of what's going on? So like, would you read Facebook's earnings or their transcripts just to kind of get an idea of like what's going on maybe in the ad market or like omnicom uh, even a, though we would never purchase facebook or omnicom right that's a very good point um yeah i will do something like that now advertising not so much because although we talk about it a lot on the podcast most everyone in that is so big there's some exceptions but it's just there, there's such big companies both in terms of the uh you know buyers of media and the outlets that that uh are the media outlets. Um, so, but that's a really good thing to do to look at all that. Absolutely. Like if I was thinking about, let's say I was thinking about investing in Omnicom or something, I would be looking at snaps, um, transcripts and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it helps you get an overall idea of, like you said, of the industry and see what parts are growing, what parts aren't, um, well, we mentioned title insurance things, something like that. I would read things that are home building things um, and mortgage market things um, for some color on that as compared to um, just so. So that's like a related thing that's close enough. Yeah. So we haven't ever purchased a stock that you haven't followed for a very long time, I would say. Mo nine times out of yeah, 10, that's the case, yeah, unless it's a spinoff. Right. Yeah. So at what point does your interest get peaked? Is it when it just all of a sudden the stock is just trading much cheaper where you're like, okay. I mean, historically has that been the case? You've followed the company for 10 or 15 years and then something changes that all of a sudden uh, makes the stock more appealing. Is it something like, oh, they're changing their capital location or is it, oh, I've liked this company and it's just finally cheap. I mean, historically speaking, what has sort of been that catalyst, I guess, if you will, for you to find like, okay, I have followed this company for you know, 10 or 15 years or five years or whatever it is. And now I'm finally interested in actually purchasing it. 
Yeah, that's a great question. I wish that the answer was as simple as what you said with uh, like because the stock's down a bunch or something. Sometimes it is closer to like Buffett with Occidental, right? So it is something where it seems really clear based on something like capital allocation. Um, I think usually there's some sort of reason why I haven't bought it in the past. If I'm aware of it, I like it in a lot of ways, but I don't own it. And so something about me getting over that reason is why I buy it um, now. And uh, I'd say, I mean, it depends. There's actually a couple examples, you know, where like meeting with management or something like that helped, right? But I think those are pretty specific things. For a lot of companies, that's not usually the case, but there are some companies that look great in a lot of different ways, but I don't feel comfortable enough unless I learn a little bit more from management about the company. Um, so those are one example. I don't want to overstate that, though, because for a lot of companies, I wouldn't have to know you know more from management than I get from their their letters or their uh, you know their earnings call or whatever. But that's one of them. Um, cheapness can be a factor sometimes. But it's rare. I mean, when we talked about like Omnicom, uh, FICO, Frost, that was all cheapness. That was due to a particular time period. Um, something happening in the like sort of macroeconomic. But it's so rare. I mean, as it turned out, it happened a few times with Frost because we've just had like more financial thing. I mean, more times where interest rates have gone down to about zero. But uh, as for things like, you know, let's take FICO, for instance, that's a once in a decade thing. And it probably wouldn't have, you know, there might've been one time in 20 years, but it did last a few years. So, and at any moment at coming out of the financial crisis, I probably could have bought FICO at any time for three years in a row, you know? So it's not always as fast as you think. Everyone thinks like, Oh, it stocks down a lot. It's at a really low multiple. I got to jump on it. Um, I wish that it worked out that way all the time, but a lot of times the stock stays cheap for a couple of years. And then now we look back and we say, oh, wasn't that a great time to buy? But at the time people were saying, well, it was a great time to buy last year and it was a great time to buy the year before too. Yeah. Now looking mm -hmm. about it, 10 years and you're up 20 times or whatever you say, oh, that was the time of a moment of a lifetime. But that moment lasted for literally like three years, I think. Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with the both of us on the Focus Compounding Podcast. Uh, make sure you hit that subscribe button wherever you are listening or watching right now. Uh, we did use QuickFS, uh, which is the website that Jeff and I use every single day to pull financial data for any company that we are looking at. Uh, and if you want to sign up, go to quickfs.net. And in the checkout, tell them that you came from Focused Compounding, that you heard about them from Focused Compounding. I thank everybody so much for tuning in with the both of us. Reach out to me if you're interested in our money management services. Uh, you could go to Focus Compounding and hit that invest tab to get more information on that. Uh, reach out to me at andrew at focuscompounding.com. Thank you so much for all the support, all the questions. We'll see you in the next podcast. Take care.